the catechism's instruction in the third commandment, um, Lord's Day 37, is under the heading of the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, and we have our instruction from uh, pertaining to oaths and swearing um, from this commandment. And it's derived from uh, Matthew chapter 5. And it's also Matthew chapter 23, which we'll go to in a minute. The Catechism's teaching on the third commandment gives us instruction on the lawful use of oaths. And that's this Lord's Day. It reminds us that whatever practice you have of making oaths, Jesus doesn't forbid categorically the making of oaths, but he does regulate it. He says it should be rooted in the principle of the third commandment, and that's what you find happening in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus reminding the people that your oaths are rooted in God as witness to your words and God as the witness to everything you say. If you swear by the temple, you're swearing by the one who dwells in it. Uh, in other words, the third commandment <clears throat> tells us how to use the Lord's name. And that's what we should take away from any of all of the, the catechisms teaching on the third commandment. It tells us how to use the Lord's name. And we as Christians are the unique people in the kingdom who can use the Lord's name and not use it in vain. If you want to be very black and white about it, you can say that Christians are the only people who can use the Lord's name and it, have it not be in vain. Any unbeliever uses the Lord's name in any way it is in vain because they're not worshiping him. The Lord's name should be used in worship reverently for the glory of God, and it can be properly used in no other way. And so that comes to bear on the use of oaths. An oath always uses the Lord's name. You might use God's name explicitly, an oath sworn to God explicitly or impl implicitly, but regardless, if it's an oath, it is in the Lord's name. This is what Jesus labored to correct among the Jews in Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, if you want to turn there, I'll be in verses 16 to 22. This was in Jesus' last discourse with the scribes and Pharisees where he prophetically pronounced that their judgment was coming for hip their hypocrisy. These were the seven woes, or eight, depending on how you count them, uh, that he pronounced on the Pharisees and the scribes. And one of them concerned their hypocrisy as it pertained to take their taking of oaths. And this is how he begins in Matthew 23, verse 16. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And, verse 18, whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What Jesus was saying to the Pharisees was that in their oath-taking, they forgot that whenever they swore, they swore before God. The Pharisees had come up with some clever rules for oath-taking. It was a great example of the way that in Jesus in verse 4 described the Pharisees as those who would tie on heavy burdens, hard to bear for the people, but not lift a finger of themselves to, uh, to, to lift it. And the commentaries on the law, the Mishnah, <clears throat> there were long regulations about oaths. The Mishnah was the, the first and second century development of the commentary on the law and the Talmud. And actually, uh, the Pharisees of Jesus' time were contributors to this Mishnah. We, it's a surviving document. We still have it today. Uh, you can look it up online if you're curious, sepharia.org. You can get the full text of the Mishnah. It sheds a lot of light on what uh, the debates between the Jesus and the Pharisees were. 
But in the Mishnah, there were regulations about oaths specifically. The example that Jesus uses here in Matthew 23 isn't there in the Mishnah explicitly, but it probably reflects something of their practice, of the practice of the Jews of the first century. The Pharisees held to different levels of oaths. Some were more binding and some were less binding, depending on what you swore by. They did this so that they could find loopholes for themselves, like Jesus says. They would tie burdens, heavy burdens, onto others, but wouldn't lift a finger to pick them up themselves. They would find loopholes for themselves while holding others to their word. So, for instance, as you have in Matthew 23, a Pharisee might swear by the altar of the temple. But when the Pharisee was pressed to fulfill his oath and he found fulfilling the oath difficult, he might claim that the altar is nothing in itself. I swore by the altar, but the altar doesn't mean anything. It's just a piece of bronze and wood, which was true. Uh, but they would use that to escape the consequences of their oath. If he would have sworn by the gift on the altar, however, that gift to God, it would have been binding because the altar, the sacrifice on the altar, was dedicated to God. And so this is how the cleverness of the Pharisees allowed them ostensibly to escape living up to their oaths by stacking up and distinguishing terms, stacking up terms and conditions in their oaths to avoid what was a plain yes I will or plain no I won't. We do the same thing with our oaths today. We have it in common practice that we add words onto our oaths in order for us to seem uh, more truthful and more earnest. I remember when I took the oath to join the military, the oath begins for every officer in the military, I swear solemnly to uphold the, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So it begins simply enough. Uh, we swear what to uphold when we're taking our oath, but everyone recognizes that oaths are meant to be broken and that everyone will try to find uh, in difficult circumstances an opportunity to escape your oath. And it wouldn't be hard when a service member is pressed to sacrifice for the sake of his oath to declare it invalid for one reason or another. So the commissioning oath for the armed forces has this clause added. I take this, and this, these are the words, I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. That was the, the term that was added to the oaths. And you have, when you memorize it, because when you're, if you have your act together on your commissioning and your uh, promotion ceremonies, you memorize the oath and you don't have to look at the piece of paper. And that was the tricky line because it's a kind of a tongue twister without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Uh, so I remember distinctly learning that as part of the oath. Uh, in effect, it was while you're swearing by the oath, you're swearing as you take the oath that you're not lying as you take it. Supposedly, you're guarding the heart of the hypocrite who would take the oath with the purpose of deceiving, having a mental reservation, having a purpose to evade the consequences of his oath. But really, what is it? Is it really getting away? Is it really guarding against the heart of the hypocrite? Or is it just adding words, adding words which will make no difference to the heart of the one who's swearing it? If you don't intend to uphold your oath, no one can secure that oath just by adding words. And it doesn't matter what words you add. Your oath is no more credible if you don't have a heart to uphold it. In a way, it's the same thing that the Pharisees were doing when they were swearing their oaths. They were making their oaths more varied and more complicated, but it wasn't making them more trustworthy. It wasn't making their oaths more true. Jesus said in Matthew 5, simply to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that, he says, is from the evil one. And furthermore, any oath you do swear is witnessed by God. There's really no loophole. You can try and manufacture them, but in the eyes of God, there isn't a loophole. If you swear by the temple, you are swearing 
by the one who dwells in the temple. If you swear by the altar, you are swearing by the gift, and you are swearing by the one to whom the gift is dedicated. The Catechism tells you that, tells you that any oath is that which calls upon God himself as witness. That's the definition of an oath. That's the definition that Christians use for oaths. There is no other way for you as a Christian to make an oath other than calling God as witness to your words. The temple, the altar, none of these things can bear witness to the truth, but God does. And so all our oaths, even all our yeses and our noes are sworn before God because God hears not just our oaths, but he hears our affirmations, our common affirmations, even our light affirmations. We say, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Uh, God is witness to them. There is really only one kind of oath, one that calls on God as witness to the truth. For a lawful oath, these are the words of the catechism, the lawful oath is call, a calling upon God as the one who knows the heart that he will bear witness to the truth. And so as the catechism teaches you, what is an oath? We get this from Deuteronomy 10.20. It's a calling upon God only. So the question becomes for us, especially in the light of Matthew chapter 5, why are they necessary? When should you take an oath, especially when Jesus gives these, these words, just let your yes be yes and your no, no. When should you call God as witness to your words and to your deeds? God knows your hearts, and so he's witness regardless of your oath-taking uh, of your promises. So when is it necessary and why should we take them? So we first should look at examples for when God uses his oaths and when uh, God's people use their oaths legitimately in the Old and New Testaments. The first example is Isaiah chapter 45 and it's verses 23 to 24. Don't turn there. I'll just read it and you can follow along with me. Isaiah 45, 23 to 24. The Lord himself says, I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. This is the Lord swearing himself and binding his people by an oath. You could consider this an act of worship. God swearing by the one uh, who there is no one greater. He swears by himself and calls his people. Uh, every tongue shall take an oath. In other words, everyone uh, who is called by God's name will call upon God call upon his name. You can think about it as when we uh, enter worship and we worship God with our songs and our hymns and we call God who he is, we celebrate his attributes and his praise and we call upon him in prayer, that's fundamentally not different than an oath. It's a calling upon God. He's witness to our worship as well as our truths, the truths that we promise, the truths that we confess. And God commands his people then in Isaiah 45 to make those oaths. Paul also, the apostles, swore to the church to assure the church of his love for them. This is in 2 Corinthians 1.23. Paul himself says, I call God as witness upon my against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Paul wanted to convince the people of Corinth that he wasn't delaying because of lack of love for them, but because he was providentially prevented uh, by the mission work that God had given him in other lands of Asia Minor. So he tells the people to assure them to call God as witness against him and his soul uh, that to spare them I came no more to Corinth, that it wasn't for lack of love, that he couldn't come to them in Corinth. Romans 1 9, Paul also says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention for you, make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul uses an oath to comfort the people of Rome 
that he was praying for them. The apostle, the one whom Jesus had called to minister to them and to intercede for him, was praying for them. He calls God as witness that his people might be comforted with the knowledge that their apostle was praying for them. So why did the prophets and the apostles use these oaths? It wasn't because they needed magic words to convince the people that they were trustworthy. And it wasn't because they had a credibility problem. Paul didn't have to assert an oath in order to make his words believable. But because their sworn oath what was, was what was needed to promote the truth, to promote the truth and make it comforting, to assure the, the hearts of the people in that truth, to call God as witness, pleading with him to hear their words and to bring them to pass, which is also the reason why we should call an oath. We should call upon God when we make our oaths because we ca call on God our help to bring them to pass. It's a rightful oath when in a court of law you're asked to swear upon the Bible and to say, so help me God, because you're swearing an oath. You're not trying to make yourself more believable by swearing it, but you're calling God not only as your witness, but as your help, as your help to tell the truth, to bring whatever comes to pass to pass and do it by your words. When God swore an oath to his people, he did it to remind his people of his faithfulness because there was no one greater by which he could swear by. When the apostles swore an oath, he did it to show the church that God is also a party to their promise. When Paul assured the believers in Rome and in Corinth that he was praying for them, God was also a party. God was also hearing those prayers. And it's by God's faithfulness that the promise will be, would come to pass. What did Jesus mean by forbidding oaths then in Matthew 5, 34 to 38? Jesus forbade unnecessary oaths for the reason that God alone is witness to all swearing. He forbade the corrupt oaths of the Pharisees. And that's the context of both Matthew 5 and Matthew 23, the corrupt oaths of the Pharisees that would call upon other things besides God in a deceptive way, um, but in a way that would uh, give them credibility or apparent credibility in the eyes of the people. The oath swearing by the temple or by the altar, or by heaven, etc. Compare that with James 5.12, who excludes swearing by heaven or earth in the same words that Jesus uses to the extent uh, or in, and tells us to that to the extent that the Pharisees were not calling upon God's name in their oaths. They were not making oaths at all. <clears throat> they were doing one of two things, not making an oath at all or making an oath with God's name in vain, not intending to uphold it. And either way, <clears throat> whether they were not making oaths or whether they were making corrupt oaths, neither way lessened their guilt, neither option. For in not taking oaths in God's name, they showed that they didn't desire the truth. If you desire the truth, you will take oaths in God's name. God will be witness to your words, and you will self-consciously know him to be witness if you desire the truth. So we should take oaths in God's name. Lawful oaths are those that are taken in the name of God. Lawful oaths that are sure, that are certainly known, that are uh, lawful in the sense that they're upholding uh, the truth and promoting the truth and fidelity that have weight, they're necessary, and they're useful, which is why the Catechism gives us this, this instruction that oaths are lawful when they are required, when they're required by the weight of government testimony, when they're required by the weight of our words and worship, those two uh, are both high callings of the Christian to speak the truth before the magistrate, the ministers of God that he's put over us, and to speak the truth in worship. That when we praise God and we celebrate his attributes, we call upon his name, we don't do it in vain. We don't recite our prayers rotely without the heart, 
Uh, we desire the truth that God is witness to our praises and that we speak the truth when we praise him. And so the teaching of Lord's Day 7, 37 is not to forbid you from taking oaths, but to forbid you from taking oaths as the hypocrites do. But more importantly, to take oaths knowing that you are calling upon God. So your oaths are an act of prayer and your oaths are an act of worship. They are a calling upon the Lord in the very same way that worship is a calling upon the Lord. So you should take oaths in worship and you should make vows to one another before God. Membership vows are a perfect example of the way we use oaths to glorify God when we stand up in front of the congregation that we've uh, come to call our uh, our home. Um, we swear an oath to submit to the obedience and the discipline of the church. We swear an oath to assure the congregation that we also are in Christ. We also trust in Christ's atonement for sins and we follow Jesus Christ and we submit to one another and desire him to sanctify us. All those things are proper for us to make uh, solemn to solemnly vow before our brothers and sisters that they might hear the truth, they might also have God as witness to that truth, and they might also encourage us, bind us by our oaths, and remember our oaths. That privilege is given, like I said, exclusively to the people of God, because we are the only ones who can call God as witness. God is witness to every truth, everything that every uh, person says, whether they say it lightly or weightily, uh, but Christians are the only ones who can call God as witness to the truth because we're the only ones who know God, who can take oaths without using the Lord's name in vain. Because he through Christ, God through Christ, witnesses to us just as we call him as witness and puts his name upon us that we can truly call upon him, which is the grounding of our oaths, that we are the ones upon whom God's name rests. And so we can legitimately call upon him in worship and in our oaths. Let's pray together. Father, as we've studied uh, this principle, this principle of the third commandment, we recognize our need uh, of truthfulness, of our the deceptiveness of our hearts and our desire to be truth, to have truth in the inward parts. And Father, at the same time, we recognize you as the most pure and upright truth and that you have called your people in truth. We ask that you bless us with the holiness that will demonstrate that truth in the words we speak. So give us the opportunity to live this out among our neighbors, not using your name vainly as the world does, but using your name in a way that makes them to understand that we truly know you when we call upon your name. And that men and women would desire to know you as well, and so make us instruments of reconciliation. And do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen.